let's look to God's word in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Anybody want this? <laughs> Thank you, Maureen, for uh, sharing that powerful scripture with us. And it is a, a powerful passage. We're going to look at a couple of things today that have the, sort of a similar, uh, uh, are in a similar category. Scriptures that if you've been in the church for many years, you've heard many, many times. And that's great, but it's also problematic. Because in that, we can sort of develop an immunity to what those scriptures are saying. And we have to force our minds to stop and listen, think, consider what's being said. And that particular passage that Maureen just shared with us, Paul gives such a strong list of things that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. But the list is really irrelevant. Those are just examples of things because he started out by saying that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What a great way to start our time of uh, our time in the Scripture today. I'm standing up here this morning because uh, our uh, dear friend Pastor Greg is uh, is not able to be with us. As you know, if you've been around the church uh, the last several months since I think November, he's been fighting a, a terrible uh, session of gout, and uh, if he's on steroids for a week or so, it uh, it goes away or goes away enough that he can function fairly normally. And then when he goes off the cycle of steroids, it comes back. And uh, he's in terrible pain today. So please be praying for Greg and for Rini uh, and their family as they continue to deal with this affliction that uh, I know is extremely painful. And there's nowhere that Greg would rather be right now than right here. We appreciate him so much. And uh, be, please be praying for him. Jessica and I were supposed to, we were scheduled months ago to be in Phoenix this weekend. Uh, to do some work. Uh, a few weeks ago, we realized that uh, we needed to cancel that because we had to go to London for another project we were working on just for a couple of days. And, uh, and so we canceled the Phoenix trip, started working on the London trip, and then she reminded me that I don't have a passport. 
because it was going to expire in July. I didn't have any international trips planned in the first part of this year, and, and so I sent it in to get renewed. And then uh, two days ago, it came in the mail. So uh, then the London trip was back on, maybe, but I looked at the price of the tickets, you know, two days away, and we decided home was a good place to be. <laughs> Consequently, we were in town last night uh, when Greg texted and, and said that uh, he needed, needed someone to cover this morning. So um, I haven't done a tremendous amount of preparation, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll stand here and faithfully proclaim the things that are in the text that we have today, and I trust that God will use it in, in your hearts. But let's, uh, let's pray to that end. Please join me. Father, we do know that your word is powerful, we know that your word is true. We know that your word is applicable. And I pray that as we take some time this morning in worship to focus on the word of the living God, that you would use it to speak to our hearts, address our minds, and affect our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember um, summer of 1972, in Petoskey, Michigan, I was 12 years old, uh, 10 years old, I guess. And uh, our family had just moved back from Ecuador where my parents were missionaries and built this little house, uh, A-frame cottage on, the, on Round Lake in Petoskey, a beautiful little spot. The house was finished. We'd moved in. And uh, my sister and I and one of her friends were down at the lake. And that evening, I, about a year before, was a time when, when even though I'd grown up in the church and there never was a day in my life when I didn't believe in God, there was never a time when I didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he died on the cross for my sins. But about a year before this day on the lake, there was a day when God spoke to me and applied all of that knowledge that I had to my heart and I knelt and asked him to be my savior, confessing myself as a sinner in need of salvation. So I was in my early stages of growth in Christ. And I remember that night on the lake because that night, my big sister Faith, who was two years older than me, uh, she and I grew up as best friends because we lived in several different countries and didn't often have other friends. Uh, to this day, we're very, very close, and I love my sister Faith. But that night, she had her Bible open down by the lake with me and this other friend, and she started reading this passage that Maureen read to us just a few moments ago. And I remember that very clearly. And it's one of my favorite early memories of Scripture because it was one of the first times I started as now a child of God, not just a child who believed in God, but a child of God, consuming the meat of the word, doctrine, theology, biblical truth that had meaning in my life. And I started learning that night that God has his love for me that could never be broken, that nothing could separate me from, and it changed my thinking. I love that passage of Scripture. Written by Paul, obviously, the same guy who wrote the book of Philippians that we're studying as we go through uh, these, these weeks, looking at the topic of joy as it's taught in the book of Philippians. This morning, our, our uh, focus is on a particular part of Scripture that, like the other one that we read earlier, has some things in it that if you've been around the church for very long, you have heard so many times that you can develop an immunity to these words as well. So let's focus on this this morning. We're going to look at uh, Philippians. We're in chapter 1 starting at verse 19. 
And we're going to go this morning through verse 26. Let me read this for you. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage and now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You may recall last, uh, last well, winter, spring, summer, uh, for about a year we were going through the book of Acts. And as we went through the book of Acts, we uh, talked quite a bit about Paul and some of the trials that he encountered in his life and the persecution that he went through. And then ultimately how he was imprisoned uh, at Caesarea for several years and then shipped off to, uh, to be imprisoned in Rome. So Paul, as far as we can tell, and it's not exactly clear in Scripture, but it's very, very likely that he was in prison in Rome when he wrote this book to the church at Philippi. And so he's talking there as a prisoner in chains. I think if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Greg teach about that from the previous few verses. And so he's referring to this, for you know that through your prayers, with the help of Christ, uh, let's see, I, I will not be ashamed, but with full, full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This was a guy who was sitting in prison who knew that it's very likely that at some time in the uh, not too distant future, his life may be taken from him. And so these words that he's writing here are being written from a place of reality, not some place of philosophy. Paul knew what he was talking about. And he made a fairly radical statement, this statement that has become iconic in church culture. To live is Christ and to die is gain. How many times have you heard that through your life? So many times that sort of, you know, we, we understand what it means. But to really understand it, you have to understand the guy who's writing it, the situation he was in, and the life that he had been leading prior to that time. For me to live as Christ, he explains here, because if I live, I can continue to, to teach and nurture the churches, like the church in Philippi that he was writing to. To live as Christ, Christ will be glorified in my life, but to die as gain. But still, at first glance, both sides of that statement seem a little bit odd, don't they? Like it's sort of a, a it comes across like a bombastic statement. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Okay, great. I'm glad you're so spiritual. I have a few struggles myself. For me to live is kind of, you know, messy. And to die is uncertain. I mean, I know where I'm going to be when I die, but it doesn't mean that I'm all excited about the prospect. It just sounds like a very hyper-spiritual thing to say. And sometimes hyper-spiritual things lose their meaning. But Paul knew what he was talking about. It, se it seems like maybe it would be better to say, you know, for me to live, if God can use me, you know, in my brokenness, how feeble I am, I'm constantly failing and, you know, I get things wrong and my focus isn't right. 
But if God can still use me, praise God. And I believe he probably can, and that's a miracle. Well, you know, that's all true. But Paul also had something else that he knew was theologically correct, and that is that in spite of whatever he may or may not be, God has shown that he's working through Paul in the lives of other people. It's something that takes some adjustment personally when you see God working. You may have experienced this yourself. I know I have. There were years when I struggled tremendously when I would do ministry and then people would say what a good job I did at something. If I would speak and people would say, oh, you did so well. I love when you preach. I I struggled with that so much that for a period of years I stopped doing it because it made me feel something inside that I didn't like. And then I, I was immature and I had to learn that it's fine because that's not me. If God can use me and speak through me and he's given me certain gifts and abilities that he wants to use for the growth of the church and his work, I take no credit for that. I get no benefit from that. I'm just a guy doing what God has given me to do. And Paul knew that. So for me to live is Christ because God is using me to, he didn't know then what we know now that he was, God was using him to speak through him to write so much of the scripture that we refer to today as the word of God. But he did know that lives were being changed, that people were coming to Christ, that churches were being established, that the word of God was going out to places where it had not been before. So he knew for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It seems like maybe he would say something like, when my time comes, you know, by the grace of God, maybe I can just creep in the back door of heaven and you know, sit in the shadows of his glory somewhere which I don't really deserve to, to be, because we kind of feel that way, right? But theologically, that's not correct. As a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our, our entrance into heaven is something that's celebrated by God himself and the angels who are surrounding him and the people who are there before us. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul said this thing that sort of sounds like it's a little bold, a little bombastic, but it's actually theologically accurate. And it's because of these things, because Paul knew that it was Christ in his life and it would be Christ in his death, that Paul could have joy in what he was doing. This is a sign of not having spent quite enough time in preparation, but uh, bear with me. C.S. Lewis uh, said a few things about, C.S. Lewis said a lot of things about joy. In fact, he wrote a book uh, called Surprised by Joy that was sort of about his wife, whose name was Joy, but it really wasn't about her at all. It was about the concept of joy and the things that he learned about joy through the difficulties of life. The difficulty primarily he was referring to then was his late-in-life marriage to Joy Davidman and then her death of cancer shortly thereafter. He knew some things about joy. He knew some things about pain and difficulty, and he knew a lot about life, and God gave him an incredible mind. But a couple of things he said about joy that stood out to me. He said, joy is almost as unlike security or prosperity as it is unlike agony. Sometimes we consider joy the source of joy to be our security or our prosperity or some happiness or good things that are happening in our life. But Lewis knew that there was a distinct difference between uh, happiness, security, prosperity, and joy. He also said some things that were very interesting about the difference between joy and pleasure. 
In fact, Lewis talked a lot about how pleasure was something that was attainable by us. You can go find pleasure almost any time and almost anywhere. We can go and find things that give us pleasure. Some of them are wholesome and some not, but finding pleasure is not difficult. He said, I sometimes wonder if all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. The heart's yearning for joy is easily replaced by our search for momentary pleasures. Paul knew a little bit about those things, and he knew about uh, living his life in a way that, uh, that focused on the joy that he got from his, his uh, salvation while he was going through difficulties. I'd like to, uh, to go back and look at a couple of things that Paul knew about regarding the pain of life. Because when we think of the Apostle Paul, so often we think of, of the guy who is writing all of these wonderful epistles and who is so bold and brave in knowing the gospel and teaching it to people uh, far and wide that, uh, that we forget that he might have had his own struggles. Years ago, when I was in a, uh, a small uh, discipleship group for a few years uh, with a, a couple of other men, we spent some time focusing on memorizing different passages of Scripture. And, uh, and one of the things we memorized together, kind of a challenge we gave to each other, was memorizing the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Well, Romans chapter 6 talks a lot about victory over sin. And, of course, this was something that was penned by Paul. Uh, he sets it up at the end of chapter 5 talking about uh, grace. He ends chapter 5 by saying where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Where there's sin, God's grace covers that sin. But then in case we would take that concept to the wrong conclusion and decide, well, if sin abound, or if grace abounds to cover all the sin that I might commit as a, as a child of God, a follower of Christ, then why even try to not sin? And he answers that question as he starts chapter 6 of the book of Romans, and he says, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if I sin more, there's more grace. That's a good thing. Grace is good, right? So I'll sin more and there will be more grace. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? He goes on to explain in this chapter this beautiful explanation of how we as followers of Christ can have victory over sin. And it ends with this great crescendo at the end of the chapter. And then it goes on to the next chapter where Paul in chapter 7 uh, starts talking about the difficulty that he has with, uh, with that battle against sin. Like the victory is not completely over. He says in chapter 7, let's see here. Okay, in, in uh, chapter 20, uh, chapter chapter. 7 and verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He talks about how I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I do want to do. Down, uh, down in verse 22, wretched man that I, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is still struggling with sin. He knew the bitterness and the pain that comes from that daily struggle to know, I, I know what's right. I know the scriptures and mentally I'm committed to following what God has me to, has for me to do. And yet physically day after day, I struggle in carrying out those things because I'm just a guy who's living in this world. This is the apostle Paul talking about this. If this was Paul, what would be expected of you? I'm not saying that you're not as great as Paul, but just maybe 
in case you're not as deep and spiritually rich as the Apostle Paul was. But this is that guy talking about that struggle with sin daily, knowing full well what he just wrote in chapter 6 of the same book, that we can have this tremendous victory over sin, and yet it's a lifelong struggle. My point is this, folks, that when Paul was talking about to live as Christ, this is a guy who knew that to live is not just a constant spiritual high and one huge spiritual victory that sets the perfect example for all believers to follow. This is a guy who was in the trenches battling it out day by day, a man who was living by the grace of God, struggling with the things that you struggle with, dealing with the things that you deal with, internally, mentally, spiritually, physically, all of those things, and yet he still said to live is Christ. That's the example that we need to understand this morning and to follow, that there is this victory over sin that not, isn't won by my daily performance. It was won by the death of Christ on the cross. And my sin is justified for not because of my actions, but because of the action of Christ. And the scripture teaches us that justification was applied to me. And friends, if we understand that, it's not a matter of pleasure or security. It's something that gives us joy. It gives us joy in the trials and the difficulties that we go through in our lives from day to day. Does this make sense? To live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul knew a little bit about death as well. I was thinking about this last, late last night, about Paul's experiences with death or people who had died. And my mind went to the story of Stephen in the book of Acts when Stephen was stoned. And it says in the scripture that those who stoned Stephen laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. This guy we're talking about here was passionate defending what he believed in the faith. And because of his passion for what he believed in the faith, he was condoning what was happening as this follower of Christ, Stephen, was being executed because of his faith. Now, you know that when Paul was in that position, he was doing what he knew, would, he knew to be right. He was wrong, but it's what he knew to be right. He knew that these people who are following this guy, Jesus, were blasphemous, and blasphemy could not be tolerated. And so it wasn't out of some hatred for God. It was out of a passion for God that he was doing this, and Stephen was stoned, and he condoned it. So imagine now... When Paul was watching that happen, because in the scriptural account of Stephen stoning, Stephen is teaching, and then uh, the, the, the Pharisees who are gathered around him start arguing with him, and, uh, and things are getting serious, and Stephen looks up and he s describes to the group that's there what he saw. And what he described is that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And that made the Pharisees so angry, the scripture says, they gnashed their teeth. I, I was telling Jess last night, I wonder what that actually means, like grinding your teeth. But something that they did, some physical outward act that they did to express their rage. And they dragged him outside of the city, threw stones at him, 
And, uh, and what did Stephen do then? He committed his spirit to God, and he asked God to forgive those who were killing him. Okay, so I'm just thinking about Paul. Saul at that time, but Paul, this, this young guy watching this happen, so sure that he's right, and still seeing this guy, Stephen, obviously at this point not putting on some kind of a show or pretending something that's not real. I mean, this would have impacted him. It probably would have confused him, but that's not even my point. My point is after Saul's conversion, when he became Paul, and he himself was a follower of Christ, and he had spiritual discernment and understanding looking back then on what he witnessed when Stephen was stoned, imagine what he would have thought then, like seeing it now through spiritual eyes, understanding accurately what was happening when Stephen had that vision of Christ in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, understanding accurately what was happening when Stephen, just before that final blow that that put him down, forgave all of those who were doing this. Man, I mean, that's something you wouldn't forget. And so Paul, when he's saying, for me to die is gain, I bet he was thinking a little bit about Stephen and what he saw happen when Stephen died and what Stephen obviously gained in this painful, difficult, tragic moment of his life, his death. He knew what he was talking about. Paul also had been through some terrible things. If you uh, flip back in your Bible to first, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, there's something else that, uh, that has always been interesting to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 8. Just a couple of verses here. I'll read this to you. If you don't have your Bible, you can just listen carefully. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth early in the second letter. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So this, I don't know what happened in Asia. It's one of those things that when I get to heaven, I want to hear the story or maybe, you know, watch the video or however it works up there. You know, I want to know what, what, was, what was Paul talking It sounds pretty dramatic when he was in Asia. And this guy who'd been through so much, he'd been taken outside the city and beaten and left for dead. And all of these experiences he's had that we studied when we were going through the book of Acts, but when he, when he was in Asia, whatever that was, wherever he was, whatever happened, this guy who'd been through life and death exper- experiences many times despaired even of death. That pretty much means I was sure that this was it for me. And we gave up hope. We believed, we felt that we had the sentence of death. And then he, real, he, he states, that, but that in retrospect, looking back on that, God took us through that experience to teach us to rely on him. And so I do rely on him. He did deliver us, and I know he will deliver us again. 
And so this is the guy who now is sitting in a Roman prison as he's writing this letter to the Philippians that we're studying today. And he's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is a guy who knew a few things about life and death. Speaking of Paul's views on death, you know, modern secular thought, when I say modern, I don't mean like now, but over the last 20, 40 years, modern secular thought has pretty much led people in our culture to cling to life with everything that they could muster. And that's not especially bad. I think God made us that way with this inward desire to have life, to not die easily. People fight through disease. They fight through difficulties. Things like Paul was talking about whatever happened in Asia. I mean, Paul was not eager to die at that point. He despaired even of life. There was despair involved in him considering this might be the end for him. God has given us something inside of us that drives us towards hanging on to life. But for those who don't really understand life after death, as a child of God, a believer does, end of life can be pretty disconcerting. And so that gives almost a, a, a wrong twist to that desire to cling to life. And in our modern culture, this has been the thing. We saw a lot of this during COVID when people went to all kinds of crazy extremes to try and be sure that they wouldn't die. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with not wanting to get COVID or some other disease and to be careful to stay healthy. All, all of those things are good. But we did see some things that were an indicator of an unreasonable fear of death in our modern culture. But then, you know, that, that has changed so quickly into this postmodern culture that we're in now where the, the more, more current trend is for people to not care about life and not care about death, to not attach any value to life and to not attach any meaning to their death. And what a hopeless existence that is. Those are two very different philosophies of life and death but Paul's was neither of those. Paul's was biblical. Paul's was based on proper theology and a proper view of God as we've been discussing here this morning. In June of 2002, I was uh, in the middle of what I considered at the time to be probably my most fruitful years. I thought that I was pretty much at the pinnacle of being used by God, and I was so happy about it. Uh, at that time, I was in the middle of my career with uh, a large ministry that I was leading around the world, had a lot of influence in this small sphere, and a lot of opportunity to lead people and to see people come to Christ, and it was just, just marvelous. In fact, in June of 2002, um, our organization won a case in the Supreme Court. That get, we were a children's ministry. They gave us the liberty to go into public elementary schools and teach the Bible. 
Uh, the Supreme, did you know that, that we have that liberty here in the USA? Before June of 2002, we didn't. But we won this case before the Supreme Court, and the basis of the case was that if the school system lets any kind of a club meet, as an after-school club or a, a club during lunchtime, then they couldn't not allow a Christian group to meet just because they were a Christian group. That's called viewpoint discrimination. And so the Supreme Court, this wasn't the Supreme Court we have now. This was the Supreme Court back then that was much uh, different than the one we have now. But they made this ruling based on viewpoint discrimination, which opened the door for this organization I was helping to lead to go into uh, elementary schools all over the country and teach Bible classes which we started doing aggressively and it's still going strong today. In fact, that could actually happen right here in this school. And it's something I've thought many times that maybe someday our church can help to organize some kind of an after-school Bible program for the kids here at this, uh, this middle school. Anyhow, I was in the middle of this, in the middle of this fruitful work that I was enjoying so much. And, uh, and then I, I developed this fever. And I started uh, having this terrible fever every day. And I, I was coughing a lot. I couldn't breathe well. I went to the doctor. They took an x-ray of my lungs and decided I had pneumonia. So put me on a strong course of antibiotics. Uh, didn't get better. So I went back a couple of weeks later. My lungs had gotten worse. They gave me stronger antibiotics. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I went back because it hadn't gotten better. In fact, it had gotten so bad, I had this terrible cough. I remember I would have these coughing fits where uh, it would end with this terrible pain in my head. It was like... Right, right in here, back in there in the middle somewhere, I, I would have this sharp pain that was so bad I would be in this coughing fit and cry out and it would stop my coughing and I just would double over in pain. And uh, so I went to, uh, to the doctor again. They sent me to this specialist who uh, did some tests and told me I had this weird uh, fungal infection called histoplasmosis. I lived in Missouri at the time, and uh, in the Missouri Valley, uh, it's pretty common. In fact, uh, it's something that's caused by, it can be caused by bird droppings or bat droppings that, that get old and decay, and, and, uh, and through moisture, uh, it develops this, this fungus, and it has to do with the leaves and the, uh, I don't know. It was, it was ugly. And people who live in that region of Missouri, I guess who grew up there, the doctor said almost everybody gets it at some point, some kind of a light dose. It's like a mild cold for a couple of days, and then it goes away. And, uh, and once you've had that, you're immune to it for the rest of your life. Okay, so I didn't grow up there. And uh, what I had done a few weeks before is taken my lawn tractor out in the middle of my front yard in the spring because I'd been too lazy to rake my leaves in the fall like you're supposed to. So I blew all the leaves into a big circle, and it took a couple hours. One day I had a great big yard, and, uh, and I was covered with dirt and dust. I went in, took a shower, and got cleaned up, and everything was fine. But it was that, that experience that caused this fungus to get into my lungs. So what happened, the doctor told me, is I had this terrible case of this histoplasmosis that had taken root in my body. And uh, she explained to me that when this happens, there's no real treatment for it, and it can sometimes be fatal. So that was a sobering thought. Uh, but this particular Friday afternoon in June of 2002, uh, the doctor did some more testing and did a CAT scan on my brain because this, uh, this fungus gets into the, the main organs, including the brain. And uh, she was checking to see if the fungus had gotten into my brain and crystallized, which is one of the advanced uh, stages of the sickness. She called me that afternoon and said uh, that... They didn't see that, but she did see an aneurysm. And um, 
told me that I should uh, be kind of still, don't be too active this weekend, and I need to see you first thing Monday morning to do an MRI. So my point is this. I spent this weekend, like, with this phone call on Friday afternoon, this Father's Day weekend, knowing that I could die at any moment. I mean, I was 40-ish years old, had... uh, Never had experienced anything like that in my life. And many of you have had such experiences where you've been given a diagnosis from a doctor that, that uh, is grim or maybe immediately life-threatening. Well, I went back in on Monday after spending that weekend thinking a lot about the end of life. For the first time in my life, thinking this could be imminent, this could be it. And if it is, what do I want to do? Well, one of the first things I did was lit the grill and barbecued some meat. Because, uh, you know, how to get one, one more good meal of barbecued meat in before I go if it's my time. The next thing is I did is I, I got my kids around. They were away, and I had them come home. I didn't tell them what was going on, but I wanted to spend the weekend with my kids. And, uh, but it just drew my focus that weekend to worshiping God, preparing my heart, recognizing that what Paul said here is true. To live is Christ. If God spares me, I'm in the middle of a, what seemed like a productive career in ministry. And to die is gain. If I go home through this, I'm ready. Praise God. Uh, God, take care of my family. But I'm going to be okay. Went in Monday morning, and as you probably could imagine, the, uh, they did the MRI and found nothing wrong with my brain whatsoever. Uh, I mean, you know, as far as aneurysms are concerned. <laughs> did God heal me miraculously? Maybe. Was there a mistake in the previous test that had them see something that wasn't there? Possibly. Does it matter? No. What matters is God gave me a lesson that weekend and what this means, to live as Christ and to die as gain. To reconcile in my heart as a young man with a family in the middle of productive years of ministry that, no, God didn't need me to stay there and do the things that I was doing, but he would use me if he wanted me to, or if not, I could go to be with Christ. And I felt a lot like Paul says here. My desire is to depart to be with Christ. I didn't actually feel that. I was ready for it. I wasn't resistant to it. My desire was to stay there and be with my family and to raise my children. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. I praise God and I'm thankful that he's given me more years to serve him and experiences to learn more and more about this. Friends, here's, here's the thing. We get immune to these important concepts. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We can have this joy in life, regardless of our circumstances. Even the spiritual struggles that we talked about, that Paul expressed in those three chapters in the middle of the book of Romans. Through the despair of life that he talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Through the fact that he was, when he wrote this letter to the Philippians, sitting in a prison, ultimately being martyred for his faith. Even so, he knew nothing could separate him from the love of Christ. And out of that comes the joy that we crave. This joy is just that. Joy is a craving. Pleasure is something that we can satisfy temporarily. Joy is something that we seek that we want, that we know exists, and we're after it. We're hoping for it. 
and it's completed in heaven, but God gives us this joy through our experiences with him that we can enjoy here on earth. I don't know that anybody has ever said it better than this, aside from scriptures. This is from that great uh, hymn. We sing it here every now and then, uh, In Christ Alone, written by uh, Keith Getty. The last verse of that, uh, that song goes like this. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, then everything I've said today will sound like a lot of nonsense. Because without that relationship with Christ, the confidence of God's using his people here on earth, and the confidence of what happens to a believer who dies in the faith, without that, none of this matters. It doesn't apply. There is not that joy in life. There is not that confidence in death. To live is not Christ. And to die is certainly not gain. And if that is your situation this morning, if God is speaking to your heart, I urge you to respond and to cry out to him and ask him for forgiveness of sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And if that is your situation this morning and that's your plea to God, he will answer you and hear that and you will be miraculously changed from death to life. For the rest of you who are here as followers of Christ this morning, my urge to you is to remember nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The struggles that you're facing in your life, the victories that you enjoy, none of those things have a positive or negative effect on God's love for you. And this is the source of our joy. This is why to live is Christ. This is why to die is gain. Because of the justification for sins that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Father, we're grateful this morning for the truth of your word. Even these verses that we've heard so many times that they can almost lose their meaning when we stop and ask you to direct our thoughts and open our hearts. Father, they're renewed to us. What a miracle it is that nothing can separate me from your love. Nothing. What a miracle it is that my life can have meaning to your kingdom. What an incredible miracle it is that I can know with absolute confidence that when my last breath is taken, I'll be face to face with the Savior. Free from the bondage of sin, free from the cares of this world, rejoicing in your presence for eternity. Father, may we long for those days that we spend with you in eternity with the right kind of longing, an eagerness to be with you while maintaining an eagerness to live a productive life for your glory.
And Father, I pray for our family this morning, this family, this body of believers. Father, work in us to do your will. Work in us to use us in our community, in our families, in our places of business. And Father, do your work in us to give us absolute confidence of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this has uh, been a good morning. Please remember to pray for our pastor as he's going through this, uh, this difficulty. And if you would like to come up and pray this morning, we have our elder team and prayer partners who are eager to pray with you, to share with you whatever burdens you would like to, uh, to share this morning. On your seat, you've got the cards about the Easter service. Take those, hand them out, get some more in the back. God bless you. You're dismissed.